I wonder, are you a person who likes to kind of blend in with the crowd, or do you like to stand out? There's a woman I read about, her name's Carly Blackburn, and she was one who, who dared to stand out, dared to be different. She was looking for a job, and she wanted to stand out from the crowd of all the other applicants. So she contacted a bakery, and she had them print her resume on the top of a cake. Here you can see it right there trying to make an impression, and she had it sent to a prospective employer, and needless to stay, say, it caused it to stand out from all of the rest. They said that they probably would have hired her anyway, but that the resume was the icing on the cake. <laughs> Thank you for booing. I love that. <laughs> but isn't that a sweet story? All right. Well, she was daring to be different, and it caused her to stand out from everybody else. And when you dare to be different, it typically causes that sort of reaction. However, it's not always that easy to do. It can be, in fact, it's typically a very tall task to, to dare to be different in a culture that is pulling us in a particular direction. Today we are starting a new sermon series through the book of Daniel. You already know that. And uh, we're talking about this topic here today, to dare to be different. It's what we're going to be thinking about. And the truth is, as we look into the book of Daniel, what we see is this, this sort of cultural conformity is as strong there, or the pull to be, be culturally conformed is just as strong there as it is in our culture today. Because the truth of the matter is, it's not a cultural problem, it's a human problem. And what happens in our world today is that we have this pull toward conformity. In fact, studies have been done that show that 75% of people will choose an obviously wrong answer to a question if the majority of the other people are choosing the wrong answer to the question. That's the power of conformity. And we're going to see it in this book that we're looking at, this pull toward conformity because it's hard to stand out. So when you find somebody who in the midst of the pull to conform is able to stand up for principle, who is able to dare to be different and hold to their principles, that's something that captures our attention. And it's something that we're going to see in this book as we dig into it. Today in these first couple of chapters we're going to look at, we are going to see this daring to be different as we look into this book of Daniel. I'm really looking forward to taking you through this. It's going to be a fairly quick series, and we're going to move through all of Daniel, 12 chapters in five weeks, and so we've got our work cut out for us in that regard. If you haven't already opened up to the book of Daniel, please do so. You'll find it near the end of the Old Testament. It's after some of the major prophetic books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and before the 12 minor prophets, those smaller prophetic books at the end of the Old Testament. It's kind of sandwiched right in between there. And while you're turning there, welcome again to all of you. Welcome to those of you who are watching online, those of you in our classic venue or in, on our Moon campus. Looking forward to going going through this together with all of you. The book of Daniel begins with a very traumatic time in the nation of Israel. 
Some of you are very familiar with this story. Some of you know a couple of key pieces to this story, and, or the key pieces to the book of Daniel. You know about a couple of those big things. I don't even have to mention them because you know what they are. And uh, some of you are probably pretty unfamiliar with what's in this. And so we're going to try to move everybody forward in their understanding of what is in here and uh, how God would speak to us because there's much that speaks to us. There are lessons that we can learn here. And so there's this major cataclysmic event that happens in the nation of Israel. In fact, the Jews continue to talk about it today. It was that big of a deal, and it kind of caught them off guard. But uh, Daniel, for his part, wasn't overwhelmed by it. And there was something that sort of set him up for success in that, and we're going to take a look at that. Daniel most definitely is a guy who dared to be different. And we're going to see how. We're going to see some of the principles of what it means to dare to be different. And the first of those is this. It's to hold on to faith. Hold on to faith. All right, you've got your journal there. I hope you have that. You've got your new sticker on your old journal. Or if you didn't have an old journal, you can stop out and you can get those at the information center. You could even do that right now if if you're present and in the room and you can be moving on with this. As the book of Daniel opens, it gives us a historical marker, and that marker is that this is taking place, or at least it's opening, during the third year of the reign of a king named Jehoiakim, all right? So it gives us that historical marker, but I want to put it back up just a little bit, put it in a little bit of a broader historical context for you, all right? Instead of just saying, all right, this is some some slice of Israel's history, but I'm not exactly sure where it is. Let's go ahead and take a look at a bit of a timeline that hopefully can help you fill this in. Now, this timeline starts with the promised land. The people are there. So previous to this has been Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We found Moses earlier and the slavery in Egypt and God's miraculous deliverance of that and the 40 years in the wilderness. And finally, they get into the promised land. All right, so this is a period of time, a couple hundred years going on there. And they come to the place where they're like, you know what? We need a king. Everybody else has a king. Why don't we have a king? We want a king. And despite uh, uh, better, you know, ideas from God, they decide, okay, we're going to have our king. And Saul's the first, and then David, and then Solomon. And it's a time when, when the people, when the nation of Israel is united. This is the United Kingdom, period. But eventually they get to the place where these different tribes aren't getting along so well and there's battles and there's fights and and there's infighting and these civil battles, a civil war really within the tribes of Israel. And so the, the kingdoms divide and you have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, the southern called Judah, and that kingdom continues on. That's actually the line of David. That's the line through which Jesus is going to come. But eventually, because of sin, because of the way that they wandered away from God, eventually there's the fall of the northern kingdom kingdom, and it's essentially wiped out at that point. They sort of blend into other cultures, to other nations that are around. They're kind of dispersed from the place that they have taken up residency. So there's the fall of the northern kingdom, but Judah, the southern kingdom, continues on. And that brings us to the place, ultimately, where the book of Daniel opens up, which is right here at the point in time when this Babylonian exile is about to begin. 605 is a really important date in the book of Daniel. We'll get to more of that here in just a second. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and jump into the text and see some of what it has to tell us. It says this in verse 1, chapter 1. Here we go, book of Daniel. 
In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, there he is, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Babylon is an amazingly powerful nation at this time. The most powerful nation on earth. And it's being led by this very powerful king named Nebuchadnezzar. And even though he was a pagan king, God used him to bring judgment on Judah, on his own people. God had been warning them again and again and again, turn from your sin, turn from your sin. If you don't, there are going to be consequences. Turn from your sin, and God exercises patience upon patience. Turn from your sin, and they refuse to do so. So eventually, there is this reckoning. They're held accountable. And so in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes sweeping into Jerusalem with his armies of Babylon, and he defeats Jerusalem. He takes over, and he begins the deportation of the people of Israel, or the people of Judah, from Jerusalem and Judea off to Babylon. 605 B.C. is when the first of those exiles go, when they're taken away. And Daniel and his three friends that you know about, they are a part of this first wave of people that are taken out of Jerusalem toward Babylon. There are going to be two more deportations that happen over a period of time. The next one's going to happen in 597, some years later, about eight years later. He comes back and there's more that are taken away. And then in 587 is when the ultimate fall of Jerusalem happens. The temple is destroyed and the final people are taken away from Jerusalem and on their way to Babylon. And that's essentially when the Babylonian captivity goes on, and it lasts for about 70 years. And this is the context in which we find Daniel and all of this happening. Important to understand. So, verse 3 goes on. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was the He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel. The the names that were just read are their Jewish names, and now they're being given Babylonian names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So Daniel and his three friends here are described as being young men, and the the word that is used there for young men suggests that they are probably about 15 years old, 14, 15, 16, right in that time frame. So young people to be sure, teenagers for sure, no doubt about that. And it says they were taken and that they were trained And another word that might even be better is indoctrinated. Indoctrinated into the ways of Babylon. And you can see that in the things that they are doing. It's part of the reason that they give them new names. See, 
Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just interested in getting some new slaves for him to use in the palace. He's wanting to transform them. He gives them new names. On top of that, there's also the issue that he teaches them what it is to be Babylonian. He teaches them the language of Babylon. He teaches them the literature of Babylon. On top of that, we're said, or it's said that he feeds them food from the king, the choice food from the king's table. Now, I don't know specifically what that food would have been in Babylon, but if this was western Pennsylvania where they would have brought, they would have been feeding them a diet of primantes and pierogies and pepperoni rolls and maybe an occasional steak salad. I mean, that's what it would have been. So they're getting the choice food of the land there, trying to make them Babylonian. That's what they're trying to ultimately do. And it's clear that life has taken a big turn for these young men. They had been happily living their lives in Jerusalem, doing what teenagers do, playing Minecraft and Grand Theft Chariot or whatever they did in uh, those days there in Jerusalem as teenagers. But now all of that has been stripped away and they find themselves in this very unusual place, this very uncomfortable place, far away from home and far away from family. And you would think that this would be something that would just crush them. But it doesn't. We find that they are not crushed. They don't crumble. Something in them gives them the peace to navigate their circumstances. And that something was their faith. There were so many things that they had to leave behind. In fact, they left everything behind in Jerusalem. One thing that they couldn't force them to leave in Jerusalem was their faith. And so these young people, these teenagers, come with their faith intact. And even though everything else is adrift around them, they have the anchor of their faith. And this leads us to one of the early lessons that we can learn from this book. Daniel and the others weren't expecting this, but nonetheless, they were prepared when it came. How often do we face circumstances where we're caught off guard? It happens all the time. Situations just come up. We didn't know what was going to happen. But it happened. And if we're not prepared, what happens is that we oftentimes get sort of thrown into a tailspin. A tailspin of despair or despondency. A tailspin of maybe self-pity. Oh, how can, why, God, is this happening to me? And we get caught off guard and we get sort of stuck or spinning our wheels for somewhat of a lengthy period of time. And we're kind of sidelined while we're trying to get our feet under us again. That doesn't happen for Daniel and for his friends because they were prepared. Why? Because they had this anchor of faith in their spirit and in their soul that allows them to interpret or to understand or to deal with the circumstances that have come their way through the lens of the fact that they know that God loves them. They know that God has purposes for them and he's going to carry that out regardless of where they are and what their circumstance happens to be. That was the strength of their faith. In a world of tailspins, we, we dare to be different as we hold on to faith. And the deeper you go in your faith, the more prepared you're going to be for when whatever circumstance comes your way. And if you find yourself going into tailspins of faith or times when circumstances come into your life and it sidelines you for a while or it causes you to doubt the faithfulness or the, or the reality of God, then that's a good evidence to you that what's happening is that your faith isn't of the nature that we find here. If you dare to be different, 
to live that out in the world in which we live, we can live it strong, and it can always be something that is brought to bear on whatever circumstance transpires in our life. So, daring to be different, holding on to faith. Another step goes beyond that is, is this, a second one, refuse to compromise. People who dare to be different refuse to compromise. So the work to reorient Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah is underway, and you can be sure that there's no small amount of pressure that's being put on them to conform. They've got this whole guy, a handler, who's essentially working with them day by day by day to try to convince them and to move them in that direction of conformity. But with all of that pressure on, here's what we read about Uh, We read about Daniel in verse 8. It says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, just what's wrong with the king's food? That Daniel's like, I can't eat that. Well, Probably a couple of different things. One is probably that it was the sort of food that Daniel knew in all of his upbringing growing up as a good Jew in Jerusalem. He knew the law. He would have been taught the law. And there are certain things that God had restricted the nation from eating. And so it's a good chance that this food that he's being asked to eat or being put before him is stuff that God had declared off limits. On top of that, it's probably that some of this food had been sacrificed to idols, this meat. And uh, there were many, many idols in Babylon, many false gods. And so Daniel just had an understanding that this is something that was against his conscience to do so. Whatever the reason, it's clear that Daniel sees consuming this meat as compromising his principles and he's resolved not to do that. Now, my kids, when they were little, when they would refuse to eat something, they usually did it just by doing this, right? And so you couldn't get the spoon past their lips. And if you are a parent here today, you've experienced that with your own kids. And inevitably, they'd probably have some big jerk to the side, which got their strained peas down their cheek and into their ear, right? That's how it happened in my house. Daniel's got a little bit better idea for what he's going to do, at least a different approach. He makes a deal with the guard, verse 12. Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink. He probably kept it for himself, took it home to his family and ate it himself, and gave them vegetables instead. So what's the lesson? Well, the lesson is that it's Daniel's fault that every kid has to eat Brussels sprouts. (laughs) That's the lesson that you learn. I mean, why did he have to thrive eating vegetables? Why couldn't he have made the test, hey, why don't you give us ice cream for 10 days, right? Every one of us would have had a different childhood if Daniel had only thought ahead. But he doesn't, and he thrives under these, eating these vegetables. Now, it's clear that God is with Daniel in this and with his friends as it goes on. We read in verse 17, To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Verse 19, the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. It would have been very easy for Daniel and the others to give into the pressure to conform and just eat the meat. 
I mean, they could have come up with any of a number of justifications why it would have been okay. I mean, after all, we're just, we're just young guys here. We're just teenagers. I mean, the, the people who have been teaching us, they're far away from us right now. And, and maybe because of the distance or maybe because, you know, we just aren't sure what we are doing here. What's wrong with eating the meat? They could have justified it. They could have thought to themselves, you know what, we are concerned for our lives and we don't want to do anything to upset these people and so we better just do what they say. And all these other guys are here and they're eating the meat and nothing's happening to them. So, so it would just be fine if we went ahead and did that. There could be all sorts of justifications that they could have come to for themselves why it would have been okay to go ahead and do so. And in a similar sort of way, every one of us face pressures to conform all the time. And there are all sorts of circumstances that come our way, and no doubt there are times when you can come up with a justification for, for why it would be okay for me to go ahead and do that, or why I don't have to hold to that standard that I've always held to because there's this reason and there's that reason, and, and I can imagine how things might actually turn in a better direction if I went ahead and, and went along with these people instead of stood against them because then they'll be against me, and that's not going to work out so well, and and just like Daniel and his friends, we could come up with those same sort of things. It might have to do with cutting corners at work or it might have to do with bending the truth so that we would stay out of trouble or so that we might turn a circumstance in our favor. It might have to do with entering into coarse joking and talking with people because otherwise they might think I'm kind of weird if I'm not mixing it up with them. It might be cheating at school. It might be giving into the temptations of pornography. It could be any of a number of different things. The pressures to compromise are all around us and it would be very easy for us to give in just as it would have been easy for Daniel to give in and to justify that. But he resolved to take a stand, to, to dare to be different on what he had a conviction that he knew was wrong. And as a result, what happens is that they thrive in the midst of this struggle. Look at verse 20. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. When they honored God, God honored them. And God will deal with us in the same way if we're willing to take the stand and dare to be different in the midst of the culture that we're in. But we're so concerned with fitting in. We feel the pull of conformity day after day after day. But that's something that Daniel and his friends do not do. They do not compromise. There's another key that comes up when we dare to be different, and it is this, to trust God to meet your need. Another priority. Trust God to meet your need. With this, we come to chapter 2 now of Daniel. And as we do so, we find that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, has had a dream. And he's really upset about this dream, so much so that he's not sleeping. Kind of ironic that he had a dream that's keeping him from sleeping. But anyway, he can't sleep. Verse 2. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. Now these men had the job of interpreting dreams or giving the king and other people advice when they would come to them and, and need to have some wisdom about what they should do or how to interpret this or that. But it's pretty clear here that, that Nebuchadnezzar has some doubt about these guys, some doubt about maybe their integrity or, or their ability to actually do what he's asking of them to do. Do they really have it? Or, or once I tell them the dream, you know, they just kind of make something up. How would I know if it's right or wrong? 
And so it's like, it looks like he's kind of skeptical about them. And so he comes up with this plan. And he says, not, he says to them, now I don't just want you to tell me the interpretation of my dream to prove that you're actually able to do this. I want you to tell me what my dream was first. And then you can tell me the interpretation of the dream. Well, they kind of go ballistic about that. They're like, well, that's a ridiculous thing to ask us. You, you can't possibly ask us to go and understand that as well. Verse 10 there is no one on earth, this is them talking, who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. The truth is that their gods didn't live at all. And anything that they had to say, any, any actual, you know, points that they had to make that actually had some basis in something happening were by evil spirits that they were finding their information. And uh, so Nebuchadnezzar is right to, to doubt them. And now they're in this desperate situation, but the king's not cutting many slack. Verse 12, this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men in Babylon. That's a big step. And guess who gets lumped in with all the wise men of Babylon? Well, you know, verse 13. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. You can just imagine the angst, the problem, the pain. You can imagine the despair that comes upon or would have gripped Babylon because of this decree. Because once the king makes the decree, that's it. It's going forward. There's no going back because that would be too much egg on the face of the king. So this is going to happen unless somebody can come through and tell them the dream and answer that for them. And it's not just these seers, these wise men themselves. There would have been families involved kids and spouses and probably hundreds of wise men that this is going to impact and affect. Despair is their spirit. Now, I know that there are times when despair comes on us too and it seems that hope is gone. You might be living in that sort of reality right now. I mean, there might be some circumstance that has come into your life Maybe through a relationship issue, maybe through a health condition or diagnosis, maybe just through some financial circumstance. It could be any of a number of things that have come your way that have you feeling somewhat hopeless. It's like, I even prayed about this and I'm not sure what God's doing or where I'm going or how this is going to work out. And you're just kind of feeling at the end of your rope when it comes to this. I was just talking to somebody, not, not, not from Pathway, but he was telling me about his family situation and this is a couple and, and they've got a child who's been going wayward and now this child has just made some decisions to stand essentially against everything that they stand for and has defiantly moved away and moved out of the house and this has caused tension in the marriage between this guy and his wife as they've tried to just process their way through it. Not that they're way out of step in what they think but just the nature of the tension that exists when those kind of problems come up. And this is one of the most stressful times for him in his work. And it's like just everything is going wrong and there's pain and there's problem and there's a despair that is settling in on this person, even a person of very strong faith when things seem to be going the wrong direction. And that's where Daniel is too. 
That's what his situation is. Look how he handles it. Verse 17. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Notice here that when things were at their worst and all hope seems gone, what Daniel does is he gathers his small group together and he prays. I mean, that's what's going on here. Notice what they're not doing. They're not trying to strategize, all right, what can we say to the king that'll cause him to change his mind on this matter? What can we say to the king or what can we do to show that, yeah, all those other guys, all those other wise men, they can't be trusted, but we're different than they are. And it's important that you, they don't do any of that. They know that they're in a situation that requires divine intervention. And so that's what they go after. They get on their knees and they start praying because they know that that is the only place that their solution can possibly be found. And I love that. And that's convicting to me too because I can actually be pretty good at strategy and figuring out, here's how I'm going to manage this situation. Here's how I'm going to move forward and cause this thing to turn in a direction that's going to be helpful for me and for my family or for the church. or for all. I'm able to do that a lot of the time. But when I do that, what I'm sacrificing is the ability to get the best response of all, which is that which comes only from God. Daniel and his friends don't try to twist anything. They don't try to manufacture or manipulate anything. They lean on God to do what only God can do. And it works. Verse 19, take a look at what verse 19 says. It says, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. God came through. God answered the prayer that was so desperately needed. So, as you would expect, Daniel immediately got up, ran to the king, told him the dream and the interpretation of the dream to spare himself. No, that's not what he does. You would think that's what he would do, but he doesn't. Here's what he does. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. With Nebuchadnezzar breathing down his neck and him about to lose his head at the neck, what he does is he sings a song of praise. And you can read that song there in the next several verses. But it's got two basic themes to it. One of those is celebrating, singing praise about the sovereignty of God, including over the edicts of a king. And the other is about the fact that God is a revealer of mysteries. A revealer of that which is otherwise hidden. Daniel dares to be different and trust God to meet his need and God comes through. When all hope seemed gone for Daniel, it wasn't. And when it all seems gone for you, it's not. It's not because we serve the same God and God longs to display his power in your life and he will as you turn to him as you dare to be different, as you stop trying to manufacture your way forward and take control into your own hands and shape your own future and start to dare to be different from the culture that is around you and even, sadly, oftentimes from the church people who are around you, daring to be different, to rely only and solely 
on the Lord that you serve, you can see that He will meet you in your need in a way that is greater than anything that you could have manufactured in the first place. Then, daring to be different has one more priority. This one is so telling, and it is this, to live life to elevate God. Daring to be different lives life to elevate God. Daniel has two great opportunities to elevate himself here if he chose to. You can see the first in verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. If Daniel wanted to play his cards differently, he could have worked it out so every one of those other wise men would have experienced the wrath of the king. But that wasn't his heart. And that wasn't his spirit or his integrity. Instead, he has a different plan to spare everybody. He didn't have to go that direction, but he does. So Daniel goes to the king, verse 26. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Here again, if Daniel was a self-serving person of lesser integrity, he could have claimed all of the wisdom to himself. Yes, king, I am able I have the wisdom. None of these other people have this wisdom, but I have this wisdom. I can tell you what your dream was, and I can interpret. He could have taken all of the glory for himself, but Daniel has interest only in giving glory to one person, and that is to God. And so that's what he does. He says to the king in verse 27, this is so telling. Underline these verses if you've got your Bible open. No wise man enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery that he is asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Daniel is living his life to elevate God. It's all about elevating God. From his very heart, from the very center place of what he experiences and how he navigates life. It's about elevating God. Then he tells the king his dream. Verse 31, your majesty looked and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer, meaning it just blows away. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel then goes on to give the interpretation of the dream. And it's talking about four successive kingdoms that would come to rule eventually, successively, one after the next, after the next. So you can kind of see this depiction of this, uh, this great statue that was laid out in this 
dream. And you can see right at the head, the, the gold is the Babylonian kingdom. This is Nebuchadnezzar. This is his vast and mighty and awesome kingdom. And Daniel goes ahead and says that that's what the gold is. Now, he doesn't give all of that same sort of definition as he goes on, but as you look at the kingdoms that do come, the ones that do follow, and the description of each and the way that they are laid out, it's pretty clear that you can figure out what kingdom these are. And just as the metals are decreasing in their value, so the kingdoms actually decreased in their power as well as it went on. So it's this Babylonian kingdom is where it begins. And then the shoulders and the arms here, the chest, it can be linked to the Medo-Persian kingdom, which came in in 539, a number of years later after Nebuchadnezzar has ruled there in Babylon. After that, you've got this waist area, the thighs and the, and the belly area, the Grecian kingdom that would eventually come into power in 331 B.C. And then ultimately the Roman kingdom, or the legs of, of iron, 146 B.C. That was a long-lasting kingdom. It lasted all the way basically basically until the end of the 5th century A.D., hundreds of years that it lasted. There's also these feet, uh, which are a little bit more difficult to assign exactly what they are and exactly what they mean. In fact, there's a lot of debate over exactly what the, the feet of iron and baked clay are all about. Most people lean toward the idea that this is actually pointing toward the end times. The time actually when the Antichrist will come into the world and will reign for a time but won't last and eventually is going to be broken down. And it speaks, of course, here of this mighty stone that is cut out but not by human hands that comes and establishes a brand new kingdom. And that, of course, is the kingdom of Christ as Jesus comes and he establishes his own kingdom that will reign forever and ever and ever. And that's what this stone is talking about. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. So let me catch up some of these verses verse 44 in the time of those kings the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor will it be left to another people it will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end it but it will itself endure forever that is the Christ that is Christ's kingdom the heavenly kingdom that comes in and he will reign forever and ever and ever verse 45 this is the meaning of the vision of the rock that was cut out of the mountain but not by human hands a rock that broke the iron and bronze and clay and silver and the gold to pieces and I have to believe that Daniel as he is giving this interpretation of the dream is watching Nebuchadnezzar's face to see how he's responding to this because even though it says that Nebuchadnezzar, yes, you are the head of gold, this, uh, your kingdom is the head of gold, it also says that it's going to be struck down, that it's not going to last. You kind of might expect that Nebuchadnezzar would have a pretty strong reaction, and he does, but maybe not the one you'd be expecting. Verse 46, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. I guess Daniel got the dream right, right? Yeah. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. This is amazing. Here you have the king of the known world, the most important, the most powerful man in the world, bowing down to Daniel. It's amazing. 
That's stunning. It's actually pretty unbelievable. Daniel didn't ask for this sort of treatment. In fact, Daniel consistently deflected all of the praise and all of the attention that was given to him. Why? What's he doing? He's wanting to lift up only God. He's living his life to elevate God. But God keeps raising him up. Why? Because he continues to demonstrate his faithfulness and his trustworthiness. It's clear that God could rely on Daniel, and so he did. And the king did too. Look at verse 48. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. The story of Daniel has so much to teach us. It's going to be like sort of drinking from a fire hose as we make our way along through each and every chapter of this book. This is a guy who dared to be different. He didn't just go along with the crowd as easy as that would have been, as much as it looked like that would have been a safer route to take. He did not. He refused to conform. Instead, he resolved to honor God through every decision of his life, regardless of what the consequences looked like they might be for him. Because not all of these choices that he is making, you would think on the surface, would be ones that are going to endear him to anybody on a human level. But as he honored God, God honored him. There's no doubt that this week that you're going to have opportunities to do the same. It might be as you're in some circumstance where you have the opportunity to speak up to a neighbor or to a friend or to a co-worker or to a family member about Jesus. You have the opportunity. But are you going to? There might be some circumstance where you have opportunity to, to live out some spiritual integrity. Or you can imagine that if you do stand up in that way, if you dare to be different, then what are these people going to think of me? And I'm a little bit too concerned about my reputation that I've been trying to manufacture and maintain for so long. I've been building my own reputation before people. And if now I dare to be different and give myself all in for Christ, what are they going to think? And we've become so good at navigating our own way, managing our own life, moving it forward thinking that this is the place where I've established myself, and maybe you have done that very well. And you're well established, and people are looking on you with a good deal of favor, but you recognize, if you're really honest, that what you're doing is that you're manipulating them and you're manufacturing the life that you're wanting to present before them rather than one that is simply daring to be different and living 100% sold out for Christ. And you think that you have navigated your way to the best possible. When the fact of the matter is, we're really doing nothing more than perhaps putting ourselves into Daniel's situation. Manipulating circumstances. Maybe not being sold out. Maybe, maybe trying to take at least a little bit of that praise for me. I mean, I'm the one who am telling you, King, the, the dream and the interpretation. And so, so you should think pretty positively about me and, and trying to kind of milk a little bit of that. Instead of it's, no, it's all about Jesus. It's about living our lives to, to lift him up, to elevate God. And I just have to wonder, how might our lives be different, even though we think the best pattern forward or the best path forward 
is to manufacture a little bit of this, pull in a little bit of that, and still, instead of just saying, okay, God, my life is yours. I'm sold out. And I'm going to let the chips fall where they may, and it just might surprise us that they fall in such awesome places that go so far beyond what we have manufactured for ourselves, as nice as it seems that we've done, as nice a job as it seems we've done, to navigate our way into that which we want to shape. What might our lives look like if we lived them all just to elevate God? To not conform to the pattern of other nominal believers or a culture? What would that look like? And are you willing to dare to be that different? It's an important question. And it's one a lot of us have answered in different ways. I've been guilty of trying to shape people's opinion by saying this but not that, or by being pretty sold out but not all sold out. But Daniel and his friends, as we'll see next week, Daniel is one who says, well, I'm going to let the chips fall where they may. Because all I know is that God is my God, and He deserves it all. He's given me life. He's given me hope. And in our case, we can say He's given us a Christ who went to the cross and died on our behalf. What is it that we owe Him? And what does that conversation that you're going to have this week with that coworker now look like? if we're willing to dare to be different. Are you? I pray so. It's certainly, if we're going to take this book seriously, is the example that we are given. So my friends, let us together commit ourselves to dare to be different. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for Daniel. Thank you for his commitment to you. Thank you for his faith. Thank you for his willingness to do whatever is necessary and just to live his life in such a manner that is sold out to you, that his faith is deep, it is strong, that it is anchored, and it's anchored him where he is. Lord, may we be able to take on that same sort of perspective for ourselves, that whatever circumstance we walk into, we might not know what was going to come our way, We're going to be caught off guard at times. But we don't need to fall into any sort of a tailspin because we have an anchor, an anchor in you if we'll live it out, if we'll rest in it. So Lord, I just pray, just ask that each of us, as we sit here, as we listen, whatever context we're listening in, that we would have this desire that we would make this commitment to be different, to live our lives just completely sold out for your purposes and for your glory. And we give ourselves toward that end that you might be lifted up, that you might be exalted. So Lord, whatever that requires of each of us in this moment to make that commitment, I pray right now in the quietness and the stillness of this moment. 
that we would respond to your call. Not to say, yeah, I need to do that tomorrow morning when I have my devotions, but that now you say, Lord, I'm all for you. Every moment, every day. You know, live a life that dares to be different for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.